0: Imagine working where grief is part of your job. Helping others cope with grief. Watching others deal with their own grief. In this time of COVID, grief is very, very real. It's a part of life and death. Today we're talking to a chaplain at a hospital who sees grief every day. In her role, she sees science, religion, and grief all come together. Working in a hospital, her perspective of COVID is unique. And today, she shares her perspectives on vaccines how hospitals decide who gets a ventilator, and what it's like to stand in for family members for someone who is dying. This is Spark Dialogue Podcasts. You can find us at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or wherever you find your podcasts. Spark Dialogue tells us stories of science and technology and how they relate to religion, culture, politics, and how we're constantly redefining ourselves as human. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez.
1: Hello, I'm Crystal Clayville, and I'm a chaplain and ethicist at the University of Chicago Medical Center.
0: If you've never encountered one, you may wonder what a chaplain at a hospital does and why one is needed. It turns out that they have many roles. Chaplains
1: do a lot of different kinds of work in hospitals and Each hospital uses chaplains differently. A lot of it has to do with what the institutions and the people that comprise them, the doctors, the administrators, the nurses, think religion is. At my particular institution, we do a lot of uh, visits with family at the end of life for patients. We go to the trauma center to interact with patients who suffered major sort of level one traumas and see how we can be beneficial to them and to their families, either um, through the grief process or advocating for them. We end up sitting on committees. We visit patients and help them cope therapeutically with what's going on and, and think about their existential reality and how, how they're going to make it in this system of healthcare that we have. So we do a lot of therapy light, is what I like to call it. Um, and it's religiously informed. So Personally, for me, I don't bring up religion other than the fact that I'm a chaplain. I don't bring up religion until the patient does. Um, And they sort of flag that as something they want to talk about. One of the things chaplains do is translate between epistemologies. (laughs) You've got um, science, people who embody science walking in and giving information to patients. (laughs) And you have patients, if they're religious, trying to receive that information. And sometimes the worldviews just don't match up, (laughs) but the goals are the same. And the chaplain isn't there necessarily to help the patient meet a particular religious goal or to pray, right? That's what doctors think we do all the time, pray. (laughs) And, um, but the chaplain is there to facilitate the translation of one worldview into another in both directions and that that is a kind of patient advocacy that happens routinely and it involves thinking about religion and science and how, how they overlap and what kinds of language can connect them together.
0: Crystal talks to people of all faiths. She has to be flexible and figure out how to best serve people who need her, no matter what they believe.
1: We interact with anybody. There's a, a division in and chaplaincy about whether or not you need religiously concordant care. Um, Should a Catholic patient get a Catholic chaplain? Um, Should a Jewish patient get a Jewish chaplain? Um, And sometimes there's a really good reason to send a concordant (laughs) chaplain um, to a patient. But usually it's all interfaith. The training that we get um, is how how to help patients use their own religious coping um to get through illness and to think about what the world will look like on the other side of illness um rather than to take in our own traditions and norms specifically so that's the that's the model that we use in in most research hospitals will use that that interfaith model and and as you can imagine if we tried to have a chaplain that was religiously concordant with all kinds of patients and all kinds of religions then We would
0: just have a huge chaplaincy department, so it becomes a resource problem, too. Before 2020, you can imagine what Crystal's job was like. She was helping sick or dying patients and their families cope with accidents or disease. She saw a whole host of reasons why people were coming into the hospital. But she wouldn't define her job as life-threatening. But all that changed last spring, when the global pandemic began. Suddenly, going to work didn't just mean encountering people who were sick, it was dealing with the very real risk that she herself would get sick. Going to work literally became a life or death situation.
1: I think early in the pandemic, going to work felt more dangerous than it currently does because nobody seemed to have any answers about how, um, how contagious the virus was, how it could be contained. We didn't know uh, the health status of patients coming in. And that's kind of what happens at a trauma center is that a lot of patients come in with, with needs and they can't even tell you their health status because they've been victims of violent crime. <laughs> the, the anonymity of the patients started to feel more dangerous for sure. Um, our particular hospital had a lot of PPE and was really helped us to use it well and re-educated us on how to use it and try to create a lot of safety for us. I appreciated that a lot. And I think early on, say by April or May, going to work, it felt like doing one's duty and helping others and sort of, I could plug into the idea that this was a privilege, right? To be able to go to work while so many people were not able to go to work. They weren't able to leave the house. (laughs) So the emotional contours shifted between fear and then privilege and then hoping that I was part of helping someone else get through this really difficult situation. But, you know, as the pandemic drags on and the uh, the contours of the work change, there's more death, there's more um, staff burnout, right? So more doctors and more nurses are kind of coming to the end of their own capacities emotionally. And then they usually recover and they come back. But it's the amount of, time that we've spent as chaplains, I think, um, interacting with staff around the amount of grief that they have to
0: witness. Something else changed for Crystal, and for other hospital workers. Instead of being there with patients and family, helping them get through difficult times, suddenly she had to be the one standing in for family, being there for the sick and the dying, when the family wasn't allowed to come into the hospital room.
1: Patients dying alone is really hard on staff because then they become the family for the patients and then they feel bad for the families and they're communicating with the families at the same time. I think that is where the work has gotten to be the
0: hardest. At the beginning, there were all sorts of unknowns. I would wash my groceries off before I brought them inside, quarantine my mail, and even go through a sort of decontamination ritual after coming in from outside. Okay, some of this I still do. <laughs> some people even go to farther extremes.
1: I did decide pretty early, like, I'm not going to put the mail in the oven. You know, like, if, if I die by mail, that's just going <laughs> to be
0: the way it is. <laughs> For the record, Spark Dialogue Podcast does not endorse putting your mail in the oven. For Crystal going to a hospital every day, there is even more risk
1: it was interesting. So all of the regulations that sort of the protocols that were suggested for healthcare workers um, in the home was like, they said things like uh, make sure you dress and undress in your garage, right. To sort of keep the containment out. And I thought who has a garage? (laughs) Everyone I know has an apartment and uh, there's not this sort of private place where you can do that. So it seemed out of step, but I, I took the point, like how can you keep, clothing that might have this virus on it out of your house. I did come home several times and sort of, and suggest I have to shower immediately. (laughs) And this usually had to do with how much time I'd spent in the trauma center where there were more unknowns, right? More people coming in It's sort of the front door for the hospital. I didn't quarantine so much as I think my mentality was something like, well, I have to go to work. So why don't I also be the person who does the other things outside of the house? Like if I'm already going to take on a certain amount of risk, why don't I be the one who goes to the grocery store too? So consolidating risk in myself, since I was taking it on already. I think initially I was worried about getting the virus. Um, And then over time, I just didn't get it. That made me feel a little better Not for any particular reason, it just... Maybe it increased my faith in the safety practices of the hospital. I I don't think there's a rational way to sort of interact with my my changing risk.
0: (laughs) My changing feeling of risk. Now imagine a situation in a hospital. There's a patient, she knows she's dying, and she wants to pray. Normally, Crystal would hold her hand and pray with her. Could she still do that during COVID? Now that simple touch that could help a dying person seemed out of the question.
1: I think in March, so early during the pandemic, there was a patient I saw who asked that I hold her hand. We had already gone into like the, the really significant safety protocols. There were no visitors. <laughs> People were wearing N95s. You had to glove up all the time. And I went back and forth with her a little bit about whether or not it was a good idea for us to hold hands while praying. And ultimately I ended up doing it because it seemed like the only humane thing to do. She was feeling very alone and she was suffering a lot and that felt very risky. And now it feels less risky. I mean, doctors and nurses are, in fact, touching patients (laughs) because they are caring for them in ways that require that proximity. I wouldn't really initiate touch anyway, but I don't initiate it for sure now. But it it does, it feels like this liminal space (laughs) because when patients ask for it now, it's obvious that they're not getting any kind of touch elsewhere. And it feels more like a kind of healing that they want. And then at end of life, we've had families come in and request prayer and being in a hospital room and trying to maintain social distance between chaplain and family and patient and maybe a medical provider has been difficult. And I've had family members ask me to come closer and sort of be in, in their space. And I, I, before the pandemic, I would not have thought of it as their space, but their space has sort of broadened. <laughs> I've tried to take as many precautions as possible and meet their needs as, as well as I can, but it's really driven home the extent to which being spiritual and emotional care for people in the hospital is very close work and that the social distancing is counter to the work itself.
0: This really hit home for me. My grandmother died of COVID. I couldn't travel to her. None of my family could. Our only consolation was to say goodbye one last time over Zoom. We talked to her as the hospital staff stood with her in full protective gear, not just face masks, but with face shields and full body safety gear. My grandmother had advanced dementia. I'm sure she didn't really understand why these people were standing around her, unable to touch her, and why her family was mysteriously absent. For me, that was the hardest part.
1: So I've been one of the people in the room for dying patients when family can't be there, especially during COVID. Often at, at request, right? So nurses are doing this work often, and chaplains R two, but this was the patient I'm thinking of was someone their family called and said, we want the chaplain there, (laughs) right? And the patient could not interact. The patient didn't really know anyone was there. And I was in the room for about an hour and I, I had to think a lot about, you know, what work I was doing. I like to think that the patient at some point did feel the presence of another person and that that made him feel less alone in those moments. But I've also, I've often thought of death as something that is a lonely isolated activity and that a lot of the rituals we have in the hospital around dying patients are for families more so than for the patient that gets harder <laughs> now when we're not allowing families in. We have been at my particular institution, we've been allowing families in for end of life visits. And that's not necessarily for the patient The patient probably doesn't know that the family is there, but it is for the family. We've even used, you know, resources such as N95s to give to family members to come in for these kinds of visits. And so the idea of thinking about resources like masks, the sort of the scarce resources that we've been talking about around PPE, that we need them not just for (laughs) staff. We need them also for these end-of-life visits and that they've been allocated for that because they end up being so important. I think in terms of advice, I would say family members should request at least video access (laughs) to the end-of-life moments, end-of-life care, so that someone's in there. You're not really present, but you can see what's happening and you can have some closure on your end. I think it's really hard to even conceptualize what the non-family members are doing in those moments. Are they taking on the risk would the family members take on the risk themselves if they were offered the opportunity? That's something I, I think about a lot, and I, I don't know the answer, but I know that whatever my answer is, access is something that the hospital administration would have to allow.
0: <laughs> even for those who survive, there's a sort of grief. Trying to heal alone is hard. Going home and still being isolated might be even harder.
1: A lot of people who are in the hospital... Patients are, I think they're suffering in the isolation. There may be studies to be done in the future about healing and physical well-being and outcomes of patients who, non-COVID patients who were in the hospital during this time and didn't have access to their own support system. I think having people come in and check on you, people you know, it gives you like a telos, it gives you a goal, right? I'm going to get out of here. I want to get out of here because I want to go back to my life with these people. And now sometimes even the prospect of getting out of the hospital is to be isolated somewhere else and maybe not even within the fullness of your own community. I think a lot of chaplains have been trying to fill that gap. We have nine chaplains and we have 900 patients. So it's not really possible for us to fill that gap for everyone to walk around and see patients and be some sort of social connection. But you can do it for some people. My conversations with patients have been focused on existential anxieties about the world right now. (laughs) What does it mean to be outside of the hospital now? What does healing look like? How will they keep their families safe? Like there's often in talking with patients, there will be anxieties that they present in terms of material resources. I don't want to be a burden on my family. Like that that's a common theme. A lot of people don't want that. When in fact their families do want to care for them (laughs) and they don't see them as a burden. And sometimes that the feeling of being a burden is presented in terms of, well, it just costs so much. This care costs so much. At-home care costs so much. And now that anxiety is less about material resources, and more about the social world that they will re-enter.
0: So many people were and are still suffering. Which brings us to the next question. How do you allocate a limited amount of resources to a huge amount of people who need them? Do you prioritize those who are young and healthy, who have more of a chance of survival? Or those who are ill to begin with and who might need those resources more? How do you decide who gets vaccinated first? In a perfect world, we could take care of everybody, but this world is far from perfect. There are only so many ventilators, so many doses of vaccine at a time. So, how do you choose?
1: Resource allocation committees are very hard. <laughs> so, I've been on some of those f- uh, for organ transplant. And then for COVID, it was a similar kind of committee, sort of a subcommittee of the Ethics Committee for Resource Allocation. You know, what is the greatest good for the greatest number of people? And I mean, assume scarce resources, and that there won't be enough to go around. Right, so there were a lot of uh, leaked protocols (laughs) early in the pandemic, right? And those leaked protocols may or may not have really... Been acted upon in place because I, I, my experience of hospitals is that they're very fast-paced. I think there were probably a lot of decisions that were made that didn't really adhere to those those protocols, and maybe those decisions were more humane than what the protocols suggested would happen. You know, as a religion scholar, <laughs> as a minister, I got a lot of a lot of feedback from people. The idea that we should treat all people as being in the image of God, that that is how these resources should be allocated. And I thought, I agree with you. (laughs) I agree that we should treat all people as being made in the image of God and that that should have some normative force. The fact that we didn't do that is being played out now because we do not have the resources. The scarcity itself or the perceived scarcity. I mean, the ventilators is like actual scarcity, but healthcare in general is a created scarcity. But that the scarcity itself is already a violation of the idea that everyone's created in the image of God. And when a situation like this arises, and you have scarcity that cannot be overcome in a short period of time then you're forced to adopt other ethical theories to think about what to do. And from my perspective, the ethics committees and the scarce allocation resource committees become sort of a subset of grief, right? Everyone on those committees is grieving the fact that these decisions have to be made and
0: trying to figure out how to mitigate losses for everyone. As the vaccine is being rolled out, I've touched base with my friends and family across the country. Some of my young friends were already vaccinated, while some of my older relatives in a different state were still waiting. Some people signed up and were alerted when there was a vaccine, while some were offered it at a doctor's appointment. And yet others had to play a Hunger game style of who gets the vaccine, checking websites 20 times a day to see if an appointment opened up. Facebook groups were even devoted to strategies on how to get an appointment. Some people traveled across state lines. Every state and every county was different. So, the pandemic
1: has revealed something that may not have been obvious to a lot of Americans, and that's just how fragmented the healthcare system is. So, when it works really well, it looks as though there are sort of a seamless situation, right? You know, if you have a medical event at home, you're picked up by an ambulance, and the ambulance takes you to the hospital, and you get care at the hospital. And yet those pieces are independent, right? The ambulance company doesn't work for the hospital. (laughs) They're not in hospital employees. So when vaccines are distributed to hospitals to vaccinate their employees, that doesn't include the EMS people, right? And they're taking on a huge amount of risk, more risk than a lot of medical professionals in the building. And I think the way ethics committees work in hospitals is similar, right? Each hospital has its own ethics committee. It functions the way the hospital wants it to function. It may be more educational than medical decision-making. That may, it may not really help people make medical decisions all that much. It may have a lot of authority. It just depends on which hospital you're in. And then you've also got the state and local governmental authorities like the departments of health <laughs> those bodies, the more governmental bodies are are telling hospitals what they can do within broad parameters, and then hospitals are fitting their own resources, capacities, abilities into those protocols and offering vaccines that way to whom whomever they can sort of fit in based on how they are governed themselves. There's a lot of fragmentation and I think it it's been highlighted because there hasn't been a unified national response, right? So if there had been a unified national response, some of that fragmentation would have been papered over. But as it is now, even early in the pandemic, whether or not you got a ventilator, if you needed one, depended on which hospital you went to and what their protocols were, which were not going to be the same protocols (laughs) at the other hospitals in town, potentially.
0: Some people are going through a new type of grief, The day that we've been waiting for is here. Vaccines are rolling out. But then you see that you're in group 347, and who knows how long it'll be until it's your turn. You see friends and family get vaccinated. When will it be your turn? For these people, it's a new type of grief.
1: It drives home for me how unique my experience of the pandemic is. That being a hospital worker and being declared essential early on has meant that I've continued to leave my house. I go to a place of work and I get to socialize with other people at a distance. (laughs) I get to eat in the cafeteria, which is in fact not a restaurant, but it is, you know, it's not preparing my own food all the time, or I can take my own food to the cafeteria. I have social environments at work that have persisted and been there for me. And I have colleagues that I can see in flesh and blood (laughs) weekly and then I got prioritized for the vaccine which means when I go to the grocery store I'm not as scared it's really just happenstance that all of that that all of that happened and I feel like my experience ends up being pretty distinctly different from other people's on this front and I think it's very hard to sit there and watch other people get vaccinated to hear the news about we just don't have enough vaccine To worry about your parents. I am still worrying about parents (laughs) getting the vaccine. And I think warmer weather might be helpful. (laughs) That's what I'm looking forward to because no one else I know is vaccinated. So I have a little bit less worry for myself, but everybody I know uh, in my life who I don't work with is not vaccinated. And so I'm hoping that warmer weather will bring some relief, that we can go outside again. I worry the most for people with young kids. And then in part because we have no idea when the vaccine's gonna be available for kids. Uh, And that having kids being able to be educated outside of the home seems to be a really important step for everyone getting some more psychological peace.
0: (laughs) We've all been dealing with our own types of grief. We've lost people we've loved to COVID. Maybe we've had COVID ourselves and the road to recovery has been hard. Perhaps we're just grieving over the loss of friendships, the loss of normal life, being able to go to church or have dinner with friends. As a chaplain, Crystal sees the role that religion has in grief.
1: I think through my work as a chaplain, and the, the pandemic has been a large part of that, I've come to think that religion is really about grief. So as an academic, I mean, I'm still an academic to some extent, but, um, when I was studying religion more academically and not as practically, not in the lived sense, I had a sense that religion was more about moral norms and epistemology and how people interpret the world. And I think those are still the same, like those are still features. But being a hospital chaplain, especially during the pandemic, I've, I've come to think that religion is really at its foundation about managing loss and grief. So that's a subtle change for me in terms of thinking about what I what I think faith is. I have been impressed with how much grace people are willing to give each other. Right. So one of the benefits of being able to go to work through all this with other people who are also on the front line is just seeing how hard they work to help other people, uh, not only to help them live but to help them be in touch with their family members to help them get external supports that they need to see them as as whole humans all the time that has renewed my faith in in humanity which i think helps me be more more faithful as a christian too to sort of to think of humanity as part of god's creation creation helping creation continue to flourish so that's what I focus. When I'm feeling really worn down by the whole pandemic and all of the negative news, said, well, every day I go to a place where people are are helping each other, and that's something we can all aspire to.
0: Wherever you are in your life right now, whatever stage of grief you are in, in dealing with vaccines rolling out, or in dealing with getting back to your normal life, I hope that soon. Whether you find solace in science or religion or both, soon this grief that we've all been dealing with will begin to heal. Spark Dialogue podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. You can find us on the web at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook or Twitter, or wherever you'd like to get your podcasts. Remember, if you're a patron of this podcast, to check out the bonus content coming out all month long on patreon.com slash and I will be back at the beginning of June with a new episode. See you then. The background music you heard are clips from Night Rain by Airtone, Silence Awaits by Analog by Nature, Darkwoods 2 by Even Chu, and Two Pianos by Stefan Kartenberg. All of these songs are licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution License. More information and links to these songs can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com.